Hello, my name is Duncan, and you are listening to Unorthodoxy. This episode is uh, part two of a two-part recorded series of talks that I gave a short while back on the subject of creativity and the logic of novelty. In the first talk, I focused on the issue of how and why different people respond to novelty differently, and in this talk, um, I look at how ideas are actually formed, both at a very basic level, the basic, most basic level of cognition, and at a more complex level. And this has really given me some insight into my own creative process, so I hope that it gives you some helpful insight on that subject too. So there you have it. I hope you find this illuminating. I want to talk about, uh, again, the, the logic of novelty, um, how to think through how novelty works. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you, but everything that, well, not everything, but most of the things that you encounter in the world that are completely normal to you were at one time invented. Chairs, for instance. Tables. Uh, electricity, plumbing. We're very grateful for the plumbing, I think. We can all... That was a new thing at one time. Christianity at one time was new. Now it isn't. Um, Bubblegum was new, although apparently the earliest forms of bubblegum were found in, in the form of, of chewed gum from trees. Cavemen did this. They were like, ooh, gum from trees, I must chew it. Um, coffee, margarine, books, yeah, you name it. They, at some point, most of what occupies our world was new. But then it became old. And so we don't notice it anymore. And what I... I take from this is a kind of a parable, which is that whatever we perceive now as new is not just about what is objectively new. It's about a particular perception of what is new. And some of that I, I dealt with in last week's talk. And the fact that we don't see um, these things as, as certain things as new, these old things as new, is because our perceptions have become accustomed to them. It turns out this is true of creativity. Creativity is a process of invention that is all about how to perceive things differently. It's really about a way of perceiving. It involves developing a kind of perceptual awareness. But I also, as, as you'll see, um, I don't think this is a unique property. I don't think that there are creative people and uncreative people, um, but which I'll explain. Soon. So my aim is very simple here. I want to explain how ideas happen, how new ideas happen. Hopefully uh, you can try this out. Uh, at the end of my talk, we'll actually do a little bit of a creative exercise. So we're actually going to participate in the creative process, which is going to scare some of you to death, uh, which is what I wanted to do. It's the only thing about this talk that is contentious, is that I'm actually going to give you an opportunity to try out your own creative minds. <clears throat> so, just bear in mind again that the act of create, creation, creating something new, is always preceded by a shift in perception. It's always preceded by a shift in perception. So, what we're going to do to figure out how this shift in perception takes place, we're going to actually look at um, cognition, how cognition functions in terms of how we develop new thoughts, uh, how we learn things. Because... That's where creativity comes from. It actually comes from a fundamental way that we think. And this way of thinking is analogy. So I'll explain what that uh, involves. So we think of analogy usually as a kind of fringe phenomenon. Uh, people use analogy, and 
kind of analogies as arguments or in arguments. And so you might start to think that analogies are these fringe occurrences or events, but analogy is the fuel and the fire of cognition. That's an analogy, in case you were wondering. Uh, <laughs> so uh, we're going to explore how this plays out, and obviously we're going to then look at how this, this cognitive process that we all use then gives rise to a particularly creative kind of use of analogy. So let's start with the obvious. I would like you to contemplate this chair. See this chair over here? Some of you can't see it. But I would like you to... Uh, later, if someone asks you what you did this morning when you woke up, you can say, well, I went to this talk and I was asked to contemplate a chair. Uh, I want to keep things interesting, so that's what we're going to do. <laughs> see this chair, and I want you to become aware of the fact that this chair exists here in the world, and it exists as an idea in your mind. I hope we can agree that this is real, and that the idea in your mind is in some sense also real. It's an object of thought. If, it's not, if you think it's not real, we have all sorts of other philosophical problems that we need to tackle, and I know that we can debate this, uh, but we're not going to. Just the basic thing of this chair is a real object in the world, and it is an object in your head. So what you have here is what the philosophers would call imagination at work. You are imagining this chair. You become aware of the fact that it's, it's somehow present in your mind in a particular way, along with everything else that's here. And hopefully you. Uh, you're also part of this, this process. Um, this is a real chair and now a real object in your imagination. And I would say the chair in your head is a repetition of this in some sense, right? It's a repetition. You're repeating the ch this chair in your head for it to become real to you. But there is also difference. There's a difference between the chair in your head and this particular chair. And you know this because you can walk away from this place and think about this chair completely divorced, in a sense, from the actuality of this chair. But we still don't doubt that even that idea of this chair is still the idea of this chair. I'm being horribly pedantic here, but, but it'll, it'll get worse, I promise, and then uh, <laughs> we can see how it goes. So there's repetition and difference, and that's going to be a fundamental thing to, uh, that's a fundamental component. By the way, if you want to look at philosophy, the idea of repetition and difference is a major concern. You can almost certainly like pigeonhole different schools of philosophical thought according to this idea. Uh, so we agree that about this kind of scenario, I hope, at least in uh, the basics of it. And I know phenomenologists, if you're familiar with phenomenological discourse, you'll understand that there are nuances to this whole thing. And I'm aware of them, but I'm not going to go there because I think that might be too complicated. Okay, so there is an overlap. And this is very important. There's an overlap between the idea in your head and the reality. There are not, I don't know how many people there, like 40-ish more or less, it's probably a, or 30, I don't know, I can't count, but Pilani agrees with me that there are 30 or 40 people here. <laughs> we, don't, we don't have 40 chairs as a result of all perceiving this chair, right? But 
we do certainly, I hope, agree that we have 40-ish ideas of this chair. You're all seeing this chair from a slightly different angle. It is one, but it is multiple. And this is very cool. Because this is where we start to get into repetition and difference is the core of everything, okay? And, and now I want you to think about this chair in relation to this chair that my uh, computer is on. They were both chairs, but they look quite different. They're made, it seems, of diff quite different materials. The one has a back, the other one doesn't. The one is higher than the other one. But they're both chairs. There is repetition. The repetition of cherishness, whatever that means. And difference. They are different chairs. By the way, that would be the same of this chair and that chair. They're the same kind of chair. Uh, they have very much the same design, all of that, like very few differences. There's repetition, but they are still different chairs. I hope we can agree. So uh, the reason I'm going quite slowly through this is because this is, this is central to, to how everything works, uh, <coughs> how thought works. So there is always this tension between repetition and difference, and it's referred to by two different names. The one is non-identical repetition, which I think is very cool. There's a lot of philosophy around this notion. But the other, the more common one, which I'm going to uh, focus on, is analogy. There is an analogy between our idea of this chair and the chair itself. There's an analogy between this chair and this chair and between that chair and this chair. They're analogous to each other. Now, analogy is usually defined as a figure of speech or as a form of reasoning. But this, I think, misses an important fact. Analogy is everything. It's the whole way we think through everything. It's the whole way, way we learn. It's the whole way we develop new ideas. It's the way, that, well, understand new ideas. It's the way we develop new ideas as well. It's the way things react, react and interact with each other. So I'm not just saying that analogy is the core of cognition, which is what I'm saying. I'm saying that it is the core of being and reality. Which is, I know, a fairly, actually, the, the philosophical gap between those two ideas is pretty huge. But there's an analogy that governs how things work in the world as actual things. But that process also governs how thought works. Unfortunately, our thinking is sometimes a little shoddy because thinking requires keeping that tension between repetition and difference in play. I will bring this back to very, very alarmingly concrete examples in a minute. It's the center of understanding ourselves. It's the center of understanding the world, people, God. Analogy is everything. Um, so basically what analogy means is that two things when juxtaposed are both similar, there is repetition, and different, there is otherness. Sameness and otherness. But analogy functions as neither the one nor the other, and yet it holds both together. Does that make sense to you in some way? Analogy is not the difference between two things. It is not the repetition of two things, but it is the thing that helps us to see the relation between those two things. In a way, you could say that analogy is the beyond and the between of sameness and, other, and otherness. 
Um, so let's look at analogical reasoning as an example. So this is one of the, the common components of, of logic. Um, so you take two objects or events, object A and object B, and you place them side by side. That's fairly simple. And then you argue through analogical reasoning that because object A has a certain property, let's call that property P, if you want to use mathematical-ish notation, if object A has property P, then object B must also have pro property P. An example of this, uh, this is actually just an analogy as a sentence. Prisons are to crime what greenhouses are to plants. That's a proportional analogy, right? Prisons are to crime as greenhouses are to plants. Isn't this brilliant? You start to go, wait, what do greenhouses do to plants? Help them to grow. So growth is this property that this thing has, right? Prisons do the same thing. They help crime to grow. And it forces that analogy is quite simple, but it's quite brilliant. It forces you to rethink the nature of prisons. Isn't that amazing? But faulty analogy is also a possibility. So it's, it's also called uh, a false or faulty analogy. This is where you presume too much similarity. So if, and I'm going to use it, you'll, there are many levels of falseness in this analogy. It's the classic apples and or, comparing apples and oranges analogy. So that's false analogy. If apples are fruit, fruit is not really a property of apples, but we'll put that aside. Okay, so if apples are fruit and oranges are fruit, therefore apples must taste like oranges. That would be false analogy. Now, this is really important. The reason false analogy exists is because there's an imbalance in repetition, in the tension between repetition and difference. There is too much, in this analogy, there is too much repetition. If apples and oranges are both fruit, then they must both taste exactly the same. Well, that's repeating one quality and pulling it throughout, but that's not, that's actually, that's just a bad analogy. It's seeing sameness and difference in a wrong relation. The interesting thing is, to see false analogy requires thinking analogically. You actually need to be able to think of these two things together and intentions. You need to be able to compare them. So we have to see difference and repetition. And we have to see, to use the more philosophical term, we have to see non-identical repetition. See meaning perceive, because see is an analogy for the word perceive you'll get a little irritated with analogy and the whole way today <laughs> you're going to think of everything analogically, I hope. Uh, but this is, this is basically how cognition works. So it's not, this is not just a part of how we think. This is the whole deal. Let's look at a very ordinary, everyday conversation. You meet up with a friend and the friend starts talking to you about some trouble they're having at work with a particular colleague. And you go... My word, that sounds exactly like the trouble I'm having with my colleague, so-and-so. Maybe you don't mention their names because you don't want to be a gossip. But then you compare this experience of your friend with your own experience. There is sameness. But there is also difference. You don't want to arrive at the conclusion, oh, wow, that colleague sounds like they're doing exactly what my colleague is doing. Therefore, they are the same person. You don't do that. But by the way, if you'll just pick this up. If you're having a conversation with people 
that associative process that your memory is uh, performing, and, and creativity in its simplest sense is associative memory on acid, as I like to say. So it's, it's you, you are mirroring the experience of the person opposite you. This is something that three-year-olds do really badly. If you've noticed three-year-olds having a conversation. The one says, my daddy is a fireman. And he puts out fires. And the other one says, oh, I just got a new toy. Uh, okay. And they really, they have these two, it's two monologues. They don't have dialogue. They have monologues. But they're not actually listening in a way, which I'm experiencing as a parent. Little, little kids uh, and listening, not really, they go together like a horse and a fish. Um, so... <laughs> You see how important it is to see this relation uh, between things. That's how we think through uh, reality. So that's just a normal conversation. But it works um, in all sorts of other ways too. Um, the technical way to frame this is to see analogy is, is referred to as a source-target relation. Okay, so the, the target is what we're referring to. And the source becomes basically the lens that we use to refer to that target. Source, target. I'm glad that I flummoxed you so early in the, in the morning. Okay, so then uh, let's use a few other everyday examples. I was on the train, the car train on, uh, on Monday because I was going through to Joburg to see a doctoral student to chat to her about her work. And brilliantly, somehow, uh, someone had organized for two little boys uh, who were friends, analogical uh, concept, friends because they're same and different. <laughs> they may have been twins, another form of analogy. Uh, but they were two friends, they were about six years old, and they were accompanied by an adult who was not paying very much attention. And they were having this amazing conversation with each other. And they were, in fact, listening to each other, as you will see. And on, as we left the Hatfield station, and we approached the Pretoria station, and there's this large section of kind of very heavy concrete bridge that supports the train. And the one kid looks at it, and he says to the other, that looks like the big wall of China. Big analogy for great, obviously. And then he followed that up with, you can see it from space. Now, I'm not sure if he meant that you can see that particular concrete bridge from space. But that's, I mean, or, oh, like, associative memory just ran away with him, and he was thinking of something else. That object A, the concrete bridge, is seen through object B, the Great Wall of China. A short while later, and this is a, a much simpler, so that's actually a really creative analogy. Um, a little while later, and you're all going, what? Kids, by the way, do creativity without blinking. As we grow old, we get all sort of accustomed to specific ways of seeing. And then we get very upset when people confront us with the fact that they might think differently. That is because we get into, stuck into repetition. We lose touch with the reality of things, which is analogy. So a short while later on this train trip, the one boy says, look, a spa truck, as in a truck with a spa logo on it. Like an instant later, his friend says, look, it's another one. Now the word one could refer to many things, anything, everything. But in this specific instance, it is related to another spa truck. So... Object A, one spa truck, seen through object B. Without the presence of it, that truck would still have been seen through the concept of truck, or the category of truck. I haven't decided to discuss in depth, but my, 
my definition of a category or a concept is an approximate, approximate malleable hermeneutical force field. Uh, I, like, I like the interesting definitions. That, by the way, works very, very well in theory. Uh, not in practice, though. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It works really well in practice, too. And then a short while later, these two, we, we passed it uh, on the on the car train, we passed a mask. And the one boy said, look, a castle. And the other one said, very knowingly and very wittingly, uh, very, you know, uh, I can't even find the word. Deliberately. What kind of castle is that? <laughs> Isn't that great? Because they didn't, both of them didn't have the concept of mask, but it looks, well, kind of castle-like. So it's a really amazing thing. There you get a, a hint of just how creative analogy can be. So to quote that great philosopher, Darkwing Duck, let's get biblical. Uh, there's this Famous story that you all know, King David has been a little naughty. And he has stolen someone else's wife and had the guy killed. You know, <laughs> because it's the Bible and it's a very tame book. And uh, <laughs> I like the fact that the Anglican priest is laughing hardest. <laughs> um, so, so this is what happens is the prophet Nathan goes to David and he says, Look, David. There is this guy. He was pretty rich. He had lots of sheep. But he went and he stole the poor guy's ewe lamb and he cooked it for dinner. And David gets furious. I'm truncating the story, obviously. He gets furious and he, he just thinks this guy ought to die. He deserves death. Uh, and, and Nathan goes, David, you are the man. And this is an amazing moment because then David simply responds afterwards no, look here, see, Nathan, I haven't stolen anyone's sheep. Now, we know that that's not what happens. The story goes that David goes, oh, my goodness, I am that guy. Now, he didn't steal any sheep. He was not a rich man. He was a king. So, you know, slightly, you know, I suppose there's an analogical relationship there, but king. And so that's a very interesting thing. We read these stories. Why does, why does the Bible still have relevance today? You read it and you're like... Yeah, okay, guys stole sheep. That's I, The last time I had to steal a sheep was you know, ages ago. <laughs> so there's this weird, but we read it and we go, oh, yeah, that, I get that. David and Goliath, you know, the, you know the story. And you read it, and you read the story about this little kid who had pebbles and a giant. And the first thought is, my goodness, yes, the last time I had to go out and kill a giant. No, you think more likely of... Wow, I've got a few giants that I have to face, and I only have a few pebbles. And the giant stops being big guy with muscles and starts being big problem that you're facing, and the pebbles are no longer pebbles. They're actually the tools that you have to face your giant, whatever it is. And then 2,500 or more years later, Malcolm Gladwell writes a book called David and Goliath. Quite cool, right? Or not, I'm not sure. I haven't read it. Maybe it's terrible. <laughs> um, so that's, a, that's quite an amazing. There's almost a proportional, there's a proportional analogy at, at play there. Um, skillful slinging of pebbles is to giant as your, your tools are to conquering whatever big thing it is that you're conquering. So there's a kind of proportion there. 
This is all very straightforward. Analogy means seeing one thing through another thing. It's very simple. And this is precisely how all thinking works. It's seeing an idea or concept or object through words, firstly. And then it becomes more as these analogies escalate. And that, by the way, this definition of seeing one thing through something else is the definition of imagination. Imagination is seeing as, that's the simplest uh, kind of form of it, seeing one thing as if it is another, seeing the familiar through the unfamiliar or vice versa, or seeing one idea as it is related to another idea. Concepts, or as I call them, approximate malleable hermeneutical force fields, always function analogically. So let's take a, the category of mess. I get into my office one day, let's say it happened this week, it probably did. I walk into my office and I look at my desk and I think to myself, good grief, what a mess. And so do the you know, appropriate thing and leave and make coffee. Uh, <laughs> and then later in the week, I go and pick up my little uh, girl who is two and a half and we get home and she walks into the house and says, good grief, what a mess. Now, there is no real, like, obvious relationship between the mess. By the way, I call this um, the mess that our family room is in. I call that the result of Hurricane Isla, uh, because that is my daughter's name. Hurricane Isla, I'm kidding, the first bit. I, I had to leave off on the birth certificate. Anyway, so I said, look at this mess. Or she said, look at this mess. Now, there's obviously an analogy between my perception and hers, in that moment it gets unified in my mind, there's an, there's an amazing ability that we have to take this fairly nondescript concept, mess, and apply it to almost innumerable things. My life is a mess. My hair is a mess. The city, the, the country is in a mess. It's, I mean, like, it's just an amazingly vague concept in some ways. It's like empty until you apply it to something and then it makes sense. And that's just miraculous, I find. I, I don't know if you find this every now and then when you name something perfectly and you're like, yes, that's exactly. Now, by the way, when you, when you hear someone talking uh, about something in their own experience and you're like, wow, that feels exactly like my experience. It's not your experience, but it feels like it is. That's analogy at work. It's just it's just mind-boggling. Let's take another category, the category of sour grapes. That comes from an, a fable by Aesop, right? I don't know if you know this, but anyway, so there's this fox, and the fox is trying to get grapes because apparently he's had a changed diet, and he really wants the grapes, and he tries any means possible to get the grapes, but fails. And so out of sheer frustration, he goes... Oh, well, they're probably sour anyway. So that then translates into an English idiom, sour grapes. 2,000 odd years later, well, I don't know when Aesop was around. He was a, very, a long time ago. He's very, he's very old. He's dead. Um, so <laughs> 2,000 odd years later, a professor happens to be applying for a job as, I don't know, the, the head of a department or the dean at, at a university. And he goes through this lengthy process, and it's tiresome, and eventually he doesn't make it. And then he tells a story. He says, well, you see, I was actually doing it for my colleagues. 
I, I, I thought, you know, I've got to take charge and help him out through a period of transition and it was going to be temporary and I'm actually quite relieved I didn't get the job because now I can just research and teach and do exorbitant amounts of admin. That last bit was not what I was warned about when I became <laughs> a lecturer. Anyway, um, but we say, we say to that scenario, oh, that's just a case of sour grapes. Or he's got sour grapes. It's not, he has nothing to do with a fox, as far as I can tell. And the university has nothing to do, and positions have nothing to do with grapes. If we were paying in grapes, we'd be a tad upset, I think. And yet we call it sour grapes. That is an amazing thing. We see an analogical relationship between an Aesop fable and a scenario in the 21st century. Pretty cool. So, this brings me to analogy and ideation at long last. The process of coming up with ideas. So, I've said this again, but, uh, I've said it before, but I will say it again. Uncreativity refers to repetition without or with too little difference. There's a repetition, but there's no real difference. There's a remake of a film, and we watch it, and we're like, well, that feels like it doesn't capture the soul and the heart of the actual uh, the material that they're working with. It's too much the same. Uh, you could probably just stick, we're in the age of sequels now, so, so you could just find countless examples of this. There's repetition, but there's not any real difference. Uh, that's where uncreativity happens. And this is where we, we, we arrive at the cliche, the banal. That time that someone preached a sermon and you went, I knew that. Right? Like, okay, good. That was nothing new. There was nothing in that that felt like it, it gave me a fresh perspective. Because analogy need, needs to be escalated to increase and shift and help us to grow our perspectives. Uh, so that's the, you know, we arrive at the boring, the banal, the over, overly familiar. I would say that this is an attempt to avoid the analogical structure of being by resorting to a bracketed university. I put that in just because it's true, but I don't want to necessarily go into the details of it. It's an illusion to bracket life in terms of repetition without, <clears throat> without difference. And yet so many people do that. Fundamentalism is exactly this, by the way. If you ever wondered a definition of fundamentalism is profoundly uncreative. Not because it sticks to doctrines. That's not a bad thing. But because it refuses to see how those relate to this scenario and this world and that specific individual and their lives and their stories. There's a failure to see difference. So it's a, a negation of the real, I think. Whatever is real maintains an analogical tension between repetition and difference. Does that make sense? Hopefully by now it, it makes more sense. Creativity then at its most primal, and when I say it's most primal, I mean like basic everyday living. Creativity at its most primal is simply category modification through analogy. Taking a category and modifying it through an, an, through an analogical process. Take a little kid who learns the word mommy. This is an amazing thing. I mean, it's a very ordinary thing, but it's amazing. The kid learns the word mommy, and the kid then figures out that this lady, the kid doesn't have concept of this lady, but 
the real person over here. This is mommy. And then later on, the kid is playing in a playground and she sees another lady with a little girl. And she goes, huh, that girl has a mommy too. So there's an analogical process there. And then she learns that little kittens have mommies and little doggies have mommies and giraffes. And then she learns to her absolute shock that her grandmother is mommy's mommy. And there, there's that word mother sticking out of grandmother. What the? Mother, mommy, mother. There's an analogical relationship there. And so this specific, concrete, uh, very personal category is expanding all the time. And it gets modified along the way. And eventually we arrive with almost no effort at all at concepts like mother-in-law. I don't know, no effort at all is maybe a little bit <laughs> too strong. Uh, mothership, motherboard, motherland, mother earth, mother nature, the mother of all pizzas, to quote Saddam Hussein. Uh, <laughs> that is analogy at work in a very, that is the most primal level of, of creativity. In this way, analogy becomes the way that we discover new things or new ways of perceiving things. That's that means that the baseline of all creativity is discovery. The, the next one is invention, which I'll get to in a moment. And the simplest example of this form of discovery, in a way, is metaphors, analogies, similes. Any form of juxtaposition or co uh, contrast in language is a simple process of discovery. At its most creative, and I use that word in bunny quotes because now we have a different level of creativity. So creativity is the baseline of all thinking. But a different level of creativity would be invention. And this is a, invention happens through an analogical process, which is, I would call, analogical escalation. So escalating or building analogy upon analogy. Bringing in new, new kind of components into this category um, expansion process. A very simple way of understanding this form of invention is to understand that this is analogy for the sake of problem solving. So often there's a creative problem. The problem may be how to communicate something better. That would be an analogical process. Very simple. But let's use a, a concrete example, Velcro. How was Velcro invented? You know. There's this guy named George de Mestrel. He was uh, hiking in the mountains, and he saw these uh, tiny hooks on the cockle burrs, these tiny kind of seed-like things that were stuck to his dog's fur. It's amazing, right? So he sees that these birds had these hooks, and they would fit into the fur of his dog. And he went, huh, that's, like, that's another way that you could maybe connect clothing. There's an analogy. Another example would be square glue stick. Uh, I don't know if, I, I, I think some people have actually tried this. You know glue stick comes usually in round form? And I'm sure you experienced this as a kid, especially like when you were gluing the corners, suddenly it all it went pear-shaped. An analogical connection, I don't know. So there's a, so it went pear-shaped because you're like, it doesn't really fit. But there is an analogy between the circle of the glue and any other shape. So let's change the shape. 
square, triangle. And now suddenly pasting the glue in the corners is not a problem. So that would be a problem solved through some form of analogical process. And now when you think about it, all inventions have some kind of analogical relationship with previous, previously existing things. All surveillance cameras relate or are analogous to the watchtower guard of a medieval castle. A light bulb is analogous to a candle. A table is analogous to the ground. It's just the ground, but higher. Right? A cup is analogous to cupped hands. Because that's how people drank things, drank things. Drunk things? That's definitely wrong. Uh, by the way, there's always an analogical competition in our heads that filters language. So we have slips of the tongue, we say the wrong words, because of what's going on in our heads. And I've just alerted you to the fact that something that was going on in my head was an analogical competition between drank and drunk. Which I don't even understand, but it was there. And so anyway, people stop drinking things through, with their cupped hands because coffee is really hard to uh, hold like that. Especially, and it's, it burns. It burns really badly. Okay, so a car is analogous to a horse-drawn carriage, hence the notion of horsepower. It's still there in our linguistic arsenal. It's an amazing thing. So that basically, in a nutshell, is all that. Creativity is rooted in the analogical structure of cognition. I'd even say that creativity is rooted in the analogical structure of being. And creativity exists in two primary forms. The first form is discovery through analogical thinking. The second form is invention through escalating analogies. Um, and so, since we have a little time out, we, we can have some questions, but I want to try a creative exercise with you. I want you to come up with, so what I have here is I have a category, which happens to once bitten, twice shy. I put them separately because that will be helpful for our little process. So this is, a, this is an idiom or a proverb, and it's an amazing thing. When you, you will use this, let's say, someone you know was in a relationship that went badly, and you, you will say, once bitten, twice shy. Even though they weren't bitten by anything, and they're not scared of whatever it is that they were bitten by because they weren't bitten by the thing. And yet you use this category to refer to it. But it's a cliche. There is repetition. You'll see it in many ways. But let's come up with a little bit of difference. Okay, so what we're going to do is look at once bitten first. This is scenario A. Scenario A is something that went wrong. By the way, you'll notice I'm basically taking this category and I'm expanding it to a more general one. Something that went wrong. Category B is scenario B. Scenario A and scenario B are not the same scenario. Once bitten is different from twice shot. But you can expand that and say, well, this is another scenario where things might potentially go wrong. You can use all sorts of definitions to expand that category. And then you can think of how to come up with a new way of saying this. I just, I sat down for about five minutes and came up with a few. Robbed in a bar, terrified in a tea house. A trip to the dentist will keep the doctor away. I like that one. I think it's pretty good. Uh, being struck by a stone is enough to make cotton balls seem scary. Struggling to read Heidegger can really put a person off reading Harry Potter. 
Someone who gets stung by a bee will flinch at the sight of a, a fly. Slipping on a banana peel will make tomatoes seem dangerous. Food poisoning in 2016 will make 27's menu look unappealing. So that would be the example. So all you have to do, we're going to use basic uh, kind of proportional analogy. Anyone want to come up with a scenario, just any scenario? Don't, don't shout out all at once. Uh, being, being fired at a job. Being fired at a job. Brilliant. Okay. Scenario B. Related but somehow a little different from scenario A. You picked a hard one. <laughs> this by your girlfriend. This by your girlfriend. Okay, so we're going to aim for like a lot of di di um, difference. But that is a very... It is a related... You can see the relationship there, the analogical relationship. Being fired from a job will make you fearful of a breakup, for instance. You can use this, I mean, it's a very simple example. Anyone want to, we'll try one more while I drink my coffee, which is now as cold as water. <laughs> You'll never see anything the same again. I am sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> I could, but I won't because I will spare the floor from this rain of coffee. Uh, <laughs> you can apply that process to anything. It's an amazing thing that that is basically all creativity. Now, one of the things you can think about is that you need, you need things to enter the frame that are different. You'll notice two different people offer different scenarios. That is one way to create difference, to, to uh, inspire thinking through things differently. Uh, in creative studies, there's a, they refer to these things almost as provocations. They're things that interrupt your natural flow of thinking. It's not because your natural flow of thinking is bad, it's just that your natural flow of thinking needs to be directed to include other possibilities. So that is that. Uh, well done for listening to uh, It was a very different talk from usual because it was very detailed in terms of its explanations. But um, I like the fact that this makes me see the mundane things in life a little bit differently. Uh, that's where it's fresh. Do you have any questions? You said that people often come into a rut. They see a lot of sadness and they struggle with creativity. Now... Sometimes uh, people come up with very novel ideas that are highly different to what people are working with. Now, I understand typically one would want to sort of help those people who are very much in the same paradigm to sort of incrementally to come up to where you are. Because if it's too much, as you said last week, they're just going to switch off and be angry with you. <laughs> yes. Now, when the concept is very different, how do you help people get there if you cannot take incremental steps? You don't. <laughs> uh, the reasons that people get stuck in an uncreative mode of thinking are actually very complex. One of the most fundamental uh, reasons that people don't want to leave their safe space, and I use those words deliberately, is because they are fearful of difference. By the way, how does that function politically? Just think of that, right? Too much difference, that's a scary thing. 
So um, it's also true that, so I actually, I find this quite interesting. The Myers-Briggs personality typing system uses intuitive versus sensate as, a, as one of the distinguishing points. Intuitives, as you have probably figured out, <laughs> like me, don't mind making leaps. It's not that I don't follow those incremental steps. It's that just that my brain does it incredibly quickly. So I don't even notice that that's what's happened. So intuitives can make leaps very easy, easily. Most people on the planet, and by most I mean it's some way, I mean estimates depending on the studies, it's around 75% of the planet are sensate. That's why things work and don't. Okay, there's a, it's why, it's why we have practical functional existence. If you only had intuitives, <laughs> I mean the conversations would be ludicrously interesting all the time. But nothing would really get done. <laughs> so we really need each other uh, in this. But sensate people, I've, I've found, really struggle. And I teach this at, at university, and I can see like where students really struggle to, to like move beyond those incremental steps. But you have to then, in those um, scenarios, you have to find a way to increase the scope of the category incre incrementally because it's how that particular person thinks or that group of people. Uh, so it's a it's a great question, um, but I, I would pay attention to different kinds of people, how different kinds of people think, how they relate to the world, whether they're fearful of it or uh, want to explore more, and then of course uh, their um, their level of fear. Like, are they really terrified? Because if they are, they probably are not going to move. Fundamentalism, as I mean, I've. I've mentioned this before at one of my previous talks, but fundamentalism is rooted in fear, not certainty. It's fundamentalism is, is a reaction, a repression of doubt and fear. We arrive at solid beliefs because we're terrified of the fact that at our center we don't believe. So, my question was more on the line of, let's say you have an idea like Einstein suddenly had this concept of relativity, which is so different to conventional thinking. But you cannot get there incrementally. You've got to go there in one big leap. Yeah, but then you have to. So Einstein came up with that theory. By the way, uh, Douglas Hofstadter in his book Surfaces and Essences, Surfaces and Essences, which deals with analogical reasoning, he deals with how Einstein developed that idea through analogy. You have to make the leap. Some people are capable of that. But to demonstrate its truth and its validity, you have to go back into the incremental steps. Even Einstein had to do that. So, so this idea that we can arrive at truth without, without those increments, I, I just don't think it's possible. I think we can guess it and postulate and yeah, come up with a hypothesis, but we still need to test it by looking at the details. That's my, my take. Sorry, it's more of an observation than but looking at your, your definition of creativity here as being a process that moves from something from your original object to something that you're analogically work through and you get a difference in. Um, is that definition of creation of, from sort of, sort of God's creation being the sole original starting point of everything um, a factor that makes him God because we are not capable of truly that's a very, very well-observed point. So, so 
we have, in, in some sense, you'll notice that my definition of, of invention is fairly, it includes discovery. Uh, because, in some sense, all creativity from a human perspective is derivativity. The opposite of creation is uh, derivation. So, it's a form of deriving something. So, for God, and this is a, I mean, I, like, I'm, I hop, hypothesize. Last time I checked, I don't know the mind of God. But, uh, like, for God, meaning is already present because God is without time and, and is, um, you know, all of the omni words, omni, omnivorous. Uh, <laughs> Analogical See, it's so much fun. <laughs> but, so, for God, everything is present at once. Everything is known. Every, meaning is already there for us. Everything has to be discovered, and it's discovered according to our particular capacity and mode of being. So, yeah, I think that's, and it's amazing, by the way, you can look at all the stuff I've done and then go back to Genesis as a poetic, like a, an account, and you start to see, and then compare that with 1 John, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was the category, and the category was lonely, and the category found another category and discovered that everything was one. Uh, so there's, I mean, you can even look at the biblical account points to this. It's an amazing thing. So yeah, thanks for that. Uh, Steve. Uh, so I give you an analogy. <laughs> My question is, to what extent would you think it's true or false? Your chair over there. I think for some people, looking at it, they would say, that's not a chair, that's a stool. So Literalists. Some people say <laughs> Allah is not God. Yeah. Is that a true analogy or a false one? So, so that would be that would be a false analogy because it it's so uh, you'll notice I, I mentioned like false analogy. The one, the example I gave was one of too much repetition. That one sees only difference. So a lot of postmodern philosophy hinges completely on difference. Difference is everything. There is no such thing as chairishness. We just happen to call these individual objects chairs. But that chair is certainly totally different from that, and they're unrelated. It's just our minds. So that's, that makes everything in our minds the determining factor of what is real or not. This is the nominalist era, which you will know very well about. So I, I would say that this is where we actually, we, we will debate perspectives and ways that reality is mediated. Um, I, I, I have discussed this in, in a previous uh, talk, but this idea that there, there are basically four modes of mediation. And I discussed the third one of them last week, dialectic. The first one is un, univocity, which sees, sees everything kind of a flattened reality. And univocity is very much accompanied by nominalism, this idea that the difference gets, gets its say, but it's through difference that repetition is created. Uh, there's a, a wonderful writer named Catherine Pickstock who, who talks about this. Univocity then gives way to equivocity. So a lot of postmodern philosophy deals with equivocity. Difference is there. And it's weird, they're related. Uh, that then tries to, that gives way to dialectic. Dialectic is trying to recover the univocal after the equivocal. And then finally, in the fourth stage is an analogical reasoning. So I see an analogy as transcending all of those and trying to keep them together, which means analogy, my claim is fairly strong here, I realize that. Analogy is how things are. 
all the other perspectives, univocity, equivocity, and dialectic, are just ways of perceiving the analogical. They're not trying to make a truth claim about reality. Well, they, they are, but they're wrong. <laughs> and I can say that because I've thought about it, but I might be wrong too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Not, a, not in three minutes. <laughs> um, I actually, I wrote a, an article for the Radical Orthodoxy Journal, which um, is a really fun way of grappling with this topic, which is uh, through humor. So I wrote on humor and, and uh, another word which means analogy, which is the metaxological. <laughs> Metaxu in Greek means the between. Uh, so it's the logic of the between, and that's what analogy really is. It's the logic of the between. So I'm sorry, <laughs> I can't really explain it simpler at the moment. Anyone else want to want to ask uh, a last question? Yes. Um, you know, I'm not a trained philosopher. I haven't read much philosophy, but how I sort of conceptualize that in my own mind is slightly different words, but it may mean the same thing: freedom and structure. And you kind of need both. If you make music. There are only so many notes. It seems very limited. And yet you can create infinite music. And when I try and advise my students, I say, first roam free. Read as widely as you can. And then come down to structure. Come down to discipline. <coughs> write that chapter. Because if you're not starting to write that chapter, ideas won't come. You have to push yourself into a discipline and into a structure. And so then well come, if you just roam and read this, oh, that's interesting, oh, that's also interesting, oh, that's all, then you get nowhere. And you need, you need that because you need to furniture your mind with lots of stuff. But if you don't get down to actually starting to write, nothing. That is so brilliantly put, and it, it raises a, it immediately, of course, reminds me um, of that movie that Matt Damon was in where he got stuck on Mars. You were thinking about Martian. it. The Martian. Thank you. Well, it's nice that you get to. <laughs> people often, and I'll, give, I'll come back to that example, people often think of creativity as thinking outside of the box, which is, I think, that thing of roaming with no structure, right? I would say that maybe to some extent that's true. If you're thinking outside the box, you're still thinking in terms of the box that you're thinking outside of. I talked about that last week. But creativity is often thinking inside the box. And the Martian is such a good example of that. He's stuck on Mars with limit. Everything is limited. The, uh, as Pierre will quote Chesterton, the essence of the artwork is the frame. That's how we understand what it is as an artwork. It's the frame. That's, that's the whole thing. Um, and by thinking within the box, in terms of all those limitations, in terms of new ways of combining them, seeing their relationality, that's what saves the guy. Look, so many people apparently in internet land said, Whoa, when did this happen? <laughs> Not yet, but it's going to probably. <laughs> but so, so well put. Yeah, we need, you can't see things as, and I think that thing of seeing freedom as unrelated to structure, that's detrimental to freedom and to structure. They, they're interrelated. So, yeah. Thank you so much for, for listening and for giving this a shot. Thank you.